My name is Mark Eltringham, and this is the Workplace Insight Podcast. In a world with too much information, yet too little time and too little attention, the great sin is now to be boring. That's not an accusation that could be aimed at James Woodhausen. His career spans the worlds of academia, journalism, research and design. Since 2001, he has been an independent voice on a range of issues related to technology, design, the built environment, infrastructure and society, amongst other things. He is never less than thought-provoking, entertaining and he's incredibly well informed. I caught up with him recently for an off-the-cuff chat following a presentation he delivered on the future of work at a conference hosted by office furniture firm ShinOps. We discussed the potential impact of AI, automation and robotics, the distorted debate about office design, the blurring of our private and public lives, and the myths of millennials, amongst other things. Hi James. Um, The theme of today's um, uh, conference has been the future of work. Um, I've often sort of come to the uh, conclusion that uh, when people talk about this, what they tend to talk about are the outliers. So uh, the whole debate is defined by what um, people are doing at the very extremes. And mainstream office design may be moving in that general direction, but uh, you know the debate itself is distorted. Is, is that how you feel about it? Yes, very much. I think um, if you remember the old John le Carré series on the BBC, Tinker Tailor, Soldier Spy, uh, it was very much about dark green filing cabinets and dust and manila folders. I think they so did that in the film as well, didn't they? They had that same A little bit, yeah, but I think it was even more authentic in uh-huh. the 80s. And, uh, you know, what that underlined for me, apart from the fact that his novels are a parable of British decay, is that uh, although things are much better now than the 70s and so on, um, the pace of change in offices is actually quite slow technologically and uh, physically, right? It's uh, not moving as fast as the outliers suggest. Not everybody is playing table footy in the reception area, thank God. Um, And of course, you know, people, um, with the exception of Shinarps, who are in the supplying uh, offices business, always want to say, you know, everything you thought about offices is no longer going to be true. You know, the pace of change is accelerating and all of these things. And the key weasel word to look out for there is exponential. Uh, Change is always happening exponentially. Not true. Even in IT, it isn't really true. If you want to get a broadband line in from British Telecom, (laughs) you will find that the pace of change is not exponential. I've moved house recently, so you know. Okay, well, there you are. So I think it is quite slow. Now, having said that, uh, there are many other changes to do with psychology, to do with sociology, to do with human resources management, which really are quite uh, far-reaching. The most obvious one is email follows you everywhere you go, right? To, to the weekend, to the beach, and all of those things. Even that is interpreted largely in a technological way, when in fact I think the main issue there is that privacy is under attack. You know, that it's not just that you're working longer hours or that IT is a bit ruthless, 
it's the fact that we no longer distinguish between your public life at work and your private life, you know, in bed or on the beach. So I think those changes are really quite important and often neglected in the literature and the, the scaremongering or the, the glee-mongering about the outliers, as you put it. But do you think the, the right to disconnect laws that they're starting to introduce in various countries, we've kind of always had the right to disconnect, haven't we? We've just not exercised it. So do you think the legislative approach will will change the culture of things, or do you think the culture has to come regardless of legislature? Well, I, no, I think the culture must come first, yeah. right? I think, you know, that we've always had an on-off button. You know, we, we must start believing again uh, in the autonomous individual. You know, of course we're constrained by circumstances. As somebody famous once said, men make history but not in circumstances of their own choosing. I'd like to put the accent on the men make history now. So I think it's time to believe that people don't need a law to go like that and say the employer can leave me alone this weekend. And how do you think employers would respond to that? Well, employers are most of the time moaning about, reasonably fairly, about too much regulation. right? And they will no doubt actually not much like that piece of regulation. Obviously, there's a case for regulation. If you take, say, the, the size of a, a flat, I was just reading about one that's 16, a whole block that's going to be made, refurbished office buildings, 16 metres squared per inhabitant, it's just in the papers, right? Then I'm in favour of regulation, you betcha, you know. But generally, we've got a whole lot of regulation that isn't just bad for employers, but bad for employees, bad for the idea that we are freestanding individuals who can make our way in life. We're grown-ups. You know, we can fight our own battles, thank you, without somebody in a funny wig saying, I'm, I'm here to help. You know, no. So you think people have to reclaim yeah, their, their and own I, I've privacy? Yeah, I have every confidence that they, they can and will. You know, they, they, we, we've done them down so much about their attitude to animals, about their attitude to nature, about men's attitude to women. Obviously, there's some problems, but generally speaking, you know, we're terrific. And it's about time somebody said that. I mean, the thing that's talked about most in terms of uh, the future of work is automation at the moment, of course. And, uh, you know, there's, there's a mainstream narrative that has developed, which is about the, uh, the, the destruction of jobs, um, and uh, I don't think either of us quite buy into that. And, and certainly I, the research I've seen recently suggests that there's going to be a displacement of, 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 of jobs. So he's going to shake things up and change things around. But you're not going to suddenly see half of the population unemployable. It, uh, but, and, and that is your view as well, I guess, isn't it? Yes, I mean, it's quite a subtle thing. In certain sectors, in certain industries at certain times, IT will get rid of jobs. Uh, an example is in financial services, robo-advice, as it's called, right? And, it, and it's progress. You know, I mean, if I even knew where my pensions documents and bump were, or my insurer, I mean, I don't know where they are in my house, and I can't understand it, and it's getting bigger. I re recently had a look at Eon's terms and conditions, four pages long, print that big yeah. you know so to to robotize and to automate all of that is good news if some jobs are lost in the process i'm not going to lose any sleep right same is happening with law very related you know field financial services law terms and conditions and so on um and uh it's also the case that even if you take robots in manufacturing they're more and more working with people not taking their jobs right you'll work alongside robots and further to that, although 
it's wrong to say IT creates jobs, it's you and I that do that. Nevertheless, as you get rid of the, the grunt work, you are going to find more people in data analytics, as we call it, you know, analyzing the data, because you're picking up more and more data from sensors from the Internet of Things. What does it mean? How's it going to improve customer relations, things like that? So there will be new jobs created around the Internet of Things insofar as it's happening, which is not a great deal. It's still very much an outlier. But there will be new jobs there. Now, the, the bigger question is, a lot of the jobs that are around, particularly in self-employment and other areas, are pretty rubbish jobs. And to get, what we need is a difficult circle to square, which is jobs in industries, new industries that are high productivity, but also pay well. They're both competitive and they provide durable jobs. Right. And that's, you know, generally high productivity means fewer jobs. But if you look at the car industry in Britain, it's a major job creator, right? High productivity, quite competitive, quite a lot of jobs down there. And also all the secondary jobs that go with that. Mm -hmm. right? So where are these new industries or sectors? It can be services. I'm using industries, you know, uh, in a wide sense. Where are they? Well, I already mentioned that cybersecurity is one of those industries. But if you look around... I've previously suggested electronic textiles, uh, jerseys that would keep you cool in a hot environment like this, right? Jerseys where you could display messages and things like that that would help you uh, when Britain gets Arctic as, as well and turn the temperature up. Fusion of two existing industries, electronics and textiles, but you could do a lot with that. You could check people's heart rates. You could do a whole lot of stuff with that. Where is it, right? It's just one example. There are other examples. One of the most obvious is, is service robots, right? Service robots for older people. Now, opinion polls have shown that lots of people don't want service robots, right? But if, it, if you come down to a few bodily functions, and we're not going to talk about them here, uh, you know, you might prefer a robot looking yeah. after you there because they've got no feelings and hopefully it's not going to give you any back chat, right? Where are we really building service robots? If you look at industrial robots, you're looking around 200,000 sold around the world every year. Fast growing, very few, yeah. actually. If you look at service robots, professional ones, not just sort of vacuum cleaning in the home, you're looking at 20,000 worldwide. Here's a whole new industry, especially given demographic trends, Japan, eventually China, where we could be building, servicing, repairing, programming, service robots. And these would be robots that are not just metallic, but have lots of little polystyrene balls, so they feel as um, soft and cuddly as you, Mark. <laughs> and there's a whole lot of, so there's a whole lot of chemistry and materials that could go into them. Those would be high-paying, high-productivity, durable jobs, for which there's a big demand, we all, we all need that kind of help as we head into our 70s uh, and so on. So those kinds of jobs are the ones that we're not really discussing. Now, what is discussed is broadly green jobs, where the, I fear the doctrine is, you know, in these renewable sectors, it's all going to create lots of jobs. Well, if you look at the Indians sorting, say, the detritus from your mobile phone, you could say they're green jobs, you know, but they're no kind of job that you or I would like. Yeah. They're done with a Bunsen burner. So, you know, the purpose of new kinds of energy is not 
just to create jobs. It's to be highly productive, right? And, you know, recycling should be done on an automated basis. We can already automatically sort the components on a printed circuit board, right? Machine vision, machine learning can do that. Why should we create jobs around that, right? There's no percentage in it. So, you know, we need a, a more uh, discriminating approach to jobs. You know, what, what are the jobs that we really want? Good jobs that will stay, that reflect real demand, that are competitive, that will pay well, where you can eat off the floor, German style. Right? We're not really even having the discussion at the moment, let alone creating the new sectors. Well, I, th- I think um, there are, I mean, I've heard people discussing it. I think MIT are doing some interesting things on the ethics of um, people's interactions with robots. Oh, yeah. And, and they're looking at things like, because um, people assume robots are like you suggest, you know, some, you know, Metal Mickey, you know, and it's not, it's not going to be like that. And they're talking about the ethics of, um, of having robots that look perhaps like seals, which they use in pet therapy. And people have this sort of, you know, engagement with, with something that is pretty much indistinguishable from, from an animal. So they, they have that interaction. Why, uh, why is that an ethical question? Be, because of um, what they're going to move on to after that. And, um, you mean uh, sex bots? Uh, well, sex bots is part of it because they, they have to be concerned about how you regulate stuff like that. But also if you're looking at care, um, if people can't distinguish between a human and a robot, they'll interact with the, the, the robot in, in the same way. So when it comes to um, you know, treating the robot as a lump of metal, yeah. perhaps when it's um, out of date or broken, the, the people will still be seeing that as a person. So they, they will still make an ethical judgment. You can't just say, oh, you know, the, you know, the, the new model's out next March, so you, would you like one of those? Because they won't respond to it in that way. Well, look, I love the people in MIT, and I read, <laughs> I, I, read, I read technology review and so on. But all of this says a lot more about our lurid imaginations than what's really going, going down. There are no bloody robots, right? Excuse that phrase, right? There are no robots out there. And, and so before we've even got them, we're worried about the ethics of them. Well, this I, is really caught before I, the horse. I think we have to, though. I mean, I, I, I kind of believe that if people are, are interacting with the robots as if they were humans, you have a problem there because it is a machine. Yeah, but we're years away from that. I, no, I'm not quite so sure. I would... Well... I, I think th- we'll cross that bridge when we come to I, it. Because I'm, I'm with you on the, the issue of driverless cars not being as far down the line as, as people would assume. But I think in terms of things like care robots... Yeah, but we've got, we've got none. Because, I mean, what I've noticed as well is, like, when you see the, the, the generation of robots that they introduce at, like, at the Consumer Electronics Show, they make them as cute as, as possible, don't they? I mean, literally, you know, sure. big eyes. They look like... Uh, you can fall in love with one. You can fall in love with one. You yeah, know. but the thing is, I, I, you know, science fiction is great. I'd love to go to Las Vegas. Uh, but one swallow doesn't make a summer, right? We, it's one thing to put on a show. It's one thing to have a driverless taxi in Singapore. It's another thing for mass penetration of robots. Now, maybe there will be some problems. But, but this isn't mass penetration. This is niche, isn't it? If you're looking at care... Yeah, but it's becoming a... If you look at care homes in this country, and you look at the demographic trends in Germany, Italy, Japan, China eventually, us and so on, we're going to need lots of service robots. Now, if they're a bit squishy or a bit sexy and we fall in love with them and then they go to the scrap heap, you know, it could be a problem, but can we have, can we have the robots first, Mark, you know, and then face that problem? But I, but I, th- I think we need to be, be 
be uh, doing both things at the same time. Well, then I think, you know, you, you, then I fear to say that you might be with the people ha- carrying a red flag in front of the Daimler-Benz car mm-hmm. going at five uh, miles well, an well, hour. Well, actually, far from it. I mean, I actually think they're going to be a boon. But I think if they're not introduced in the right way, then you're, you're going to be playing catch-up in terms of the ethics of them. Well, now you make a very important clause, which is if they're not going to be introduced in the right way, right? I've no doubt that there'll be some real idiots who will do really stupid things right, in introducing them and so on. But I've also no doubt that a lot of people will be able to tell the difference between robots and human beings, right? The Turing test, and I've got this from Demis Hassabis, the founder of DeepMind, didn't involve graphics. It was all about reading text or numbers and so on. Could you determine whether what was presented to you was a machine or a human being? And if it looked like a human being, then that was meant for him real intelligence. I don't buy that. And I certainly don't buy it in a modern graphics world and so on. Now, look, my mum is 90. I stay over her one night, a year or two back, and I had breakfast with her. And she says, have the papers arrived? I said, yeah, they're in the letterbox like they normally are. What's the issue? And she said, I've got to read about Syria, she says, at 90, right? So, you know, she is not infirm. She is of sound mind. And she will certainly be able to tell the difference between her errant son and a robot pretending to be her errant <laughs> son. You know, Do you think they're going to make a robot of you? I hope not. You know, I mean, I've already run a mark. Much work you done. Know. Well, there's that. Yeah. That's, uh, that's good. But no, you know, they'll have to smell. They'll have to sweat. They'll have to be able to tell a joke. Can a robot tell a joke? Well, it can recycle old jokes, a bit like me. Right? But, you know, a genuinely new joke about today's political developments... No, I don't think so. Not in a hurry. And I, I, I quoted a top software man about this, right? that it's more like Christmas cracker jokes. You know, you can tell that the, the guy writing the Christmas cracker joke is basically a prat, you know, and the same with robot jokes. Well, I, I think, I mean, I, I think that's what will happen with journalism, with, because they're talking about automating journalism. And I think what they mean is the sort of um, tidying up a press release and publishing it, that will be automated. But the, the the insights and you know the will will continue to be human. So well, that's true. I mean, just this morning I noticed the Guardian headline. It was live, um, to be fair. Uh, the headline was Brexit, not Brexit. Right? It was quite an achievement, really, for a, a live news feed. And the subbing standards, sub-editing standards on the Financial Times are really poor now. They do not know the difference between singulars and plurals when it comes to subjects and verbs. So, yes, we need robots to sort that out because they're clearly not paying enough people enough money and motivating them properly. Motivation, very important, to get that right the way they're used to. Do, used to. I'm not nostalgic for the past, but it's really something when you have to pick up the FT and, and criticise its English, right? So bring on the robots, I say. But as you say, the, the insights, uh, you know, are not something that robots uh, can do. And, and people... People will notice this. The private eye column algorithms you yeah, must have seen yeah, is yeah. terrific. You know, you get subject yeah. A, some silly algorithm says, "Oh, that's related to subject B." You juxtapose them, and the rest is just, uh, you know, a laugh because they're completely, you know, well, dissonant. Google you know? is tied up in knots with all of this at the moment, though, isn't it? With its um, with its ads function. Yes. Well, I find it a bit tricky. I got to do more work on that. When you when you get to uh, my age, you know when you're ignorant. Uh, so I'm going to pass on that one, Mark. 
Yeah, we can look at surveillance because I think because um, it's embedded now, isn't it? And people, from what I understand, you know, people are not aware of just how much of their um, well, I'm, uh, I'm, not, I'm not sure activity. I agree there. I think I think most people, especially young people, have it in their minds. Yeah, they're they're tracking me. I can live with it. You know, I've got nothing to be afraid of or guilty about. You know. Um, uh, two things before I go further. The famous Woody Allen, just because you're not, just because you're paranoid, doesn't mean they're not getting yeah. at you. But the better one is um, Gore Vidal, a man who is not paranoid, is not in full possession of the facts. Um, but you know, I think it's not a moment to be paranoid, right? Because uh, I mean, just this morning I got. You speak of regulation. I got a piece of paper from the government's pensions regulator saying, you know, your employees must be on our pension system, yeah. right? They're supposed to know everything about me. You know, even the state, which is much more insidious and many more resources than Tesco, right? I'm, I'm self-employed. I've got one employee, it's me. I'm not going to sign up, and I don't need to sign up, I'm reliably advised just this morning, to a government scheme which is about employees. But still they send me this bump. And the same with Barclays. They're always trying to sell me a minimum APR of 30%. I've already got a Barclay card, and I don't pay any of that. So there's much more cock-up than conspiracy, right? Surveillance at work is something, however, <coughs> that is growing. And that right now it's media companies, ad agencies, marketing services companies that are checking employees' sleep patterns and their, you know, biology and so on. Very interesting that the most liberal parts of the economy are the first to adopt this stuff. Go down that road, gentlemen, I say to them, because you will reap the whirlwind. But, but that is because they know best, though, isn't it? Well, yeah, and they will find out big time that they don't know best. You know, the, 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 the plebs will revolt. They will cast off the wristbands and the, you know, the wearables and earables, as they now are, and uh, there will be a reckoning. And I'm, I'm already going around Europe and elsewhere, uh, and Asia a little bit, saying if you want to go down that road, forgive the mixing of metaphors, you will reap the whirlwind, because people are not going to stand for it. That is insidious. That does need resistance. But do you, do you remember, I mean, the most telling story I remember about this was uh, about a restaurant, it probably, I think it was in California, almost certainly, where uh, somebody was wearing Google Glass. Yeah. And the other diners took exception to this, because, of course, you don't know Sure. What, what they're recording and what they're filming. And you just want to go out and have something to eat. You want some pasta, you know, and you don't want somebody filming you while you do it. What, yes. You know, even if that's all you're doing, having some pasta. And so the, the restaurant introduced a no, <laughs> no wearable. And it's yeah. exact, in microcosm, that's what you're saying, though, isn't sure. it? It's, people just say, you know, I don't want you filming me, you know? No, well, that's right. Well, we don't need to be paranoid about it, but it's bad manners at the very least, right? And also... Workers under surveillance cameras, very quickly, I, I read about, I think in France, actually, they're quite good at this. They make a little bit sheet of A4 saying, we know you're watching us. Foutez-moi la paix. And they put it in front of the camera. And so swearing and in French is okay. That's all right. Yeah, and they, you know, they put it in front of the camera and the management you know, backed off, right? They, w w there's an old slogan, wherever there is oppression, there will be resistance. Well, the, and, well, the and Telegraph found that, though, because they, they introduced those sensors uh, underneath the workstations oh, yeah, the, on the to, 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 to tell when somebody was working there. Chenarts, don't do it. Yeah, go on. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> Ready fitted with surveillance. But I think um, what had happened there was they weren't told. Ah. 
Because well, well, there's often the management <coughs> issue with these things, isn't there? It's like somebody just put their hand under the desk, and instead of finding you know a lump of old chewing gum, it's it's a sensor. Right. They want to know what it is, and I think the backlash was against that, yes. rather than the the sensor itself. Because the you know if you can say to people the the data's agglomerated, it's not about you specifically, and we, we use it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it's. You know, it's about us making decisions about the real estate. Yes. Then you, you you've got an argument. Well, for no, that's itself. right. I mean, you know, th- there's all this paranoia there was about electronic patient records on the NHS. If I have a car accident in Glasgow, I want electronic patient records. There's a reason to be surveyed in that way, or for the data, you know, to be captured. Right. The the, the benefits far exceed uh, the cost. So. You know, we we need to get it uh, all in perspective. And I think a lot of it is. Um, to do with the fact that a, a French postmodernist, whom you will know by the name of Michel Foucault, in his famous Discipline and Pun- Punish around the early 70s, really sort of um, put forward the idea that what was important uh, in human history was just power, just the Bentham's panopticon, just surveillance, not class, not economics, not politics, it's all a power play. And Foucault has had a, uh, a dreadful influence on universities and our thinking. It's part of the picture. You know, sometimes it needs to be allowed, uh, you know, say for a terrorist attack or something like that. Yeah, I'll, I'll accept that the, there are costs, but I'd rather take the benefits. Thanks very much. Sometimes it needs to be resisted. It's also fair enough. Is it the only event, the main event, you know, and all of this? Have we entered a surveillance society? You better have a look at Vance Packard, The Naked Society. I've read 19- the Hidden Persuaders. Well, Hidden Persuaders about advertising. Yeah, but that's the um, one I've read of and, his. Uh, well, they, uh, very famous and enormously influential. Wastemakers is on packaging. And The Naked Society, 1965, I have it in Penguin, is all about we've entered a surveillance society. And that was 50 years ago, how's my math, you know, a long time ago. Uh, It's just not the case, you know, it's not the only game in town. Another point on surveillance, because you mentioned big data before as well, but um, from from what I understand, um, people don't trust data that goes against their beliefs and narratives. So they will always filter whatever um, information comes their way against um, their own personal beliefs. So you, once the cognitive dissonance kicks in, it doesn't matter how many uh, data points you, you present them with, the, the chances are that something different might come out of it. Is that...? Well, I'm, we need to stay with the future of work, but I think, you know, data, IT... And but we could do, for example, with... If you've got all these sensors in buildings, which uh-huh. obviously, you know, there's, a, there's obviously a lot of talk about that, buildings and cities and devices. This is obviously going to generate a huge amount of data. Every device... That we we interact with, you know, is 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 potentially there generating data about what we're up to, and that can be used for decision making about uh, real estate and, and office design and lots of other things and HR policies and so on. But Good if enough. that but if that goes against people's instincts, mm-hmm. then you've got a conflict automatically, though, haven't you? If um, if the building tells you, you know, the rooms are only used twenty five percent of the time, so you can actually get rid of some of them. But your instinct tells you actually, if we do that, it's going to cause all these cultural problems. Then there, there has to be a balance against that in, in future decision making. It's well, not. I, it's not going to be solely based on data. It's no, not no, going to be no, a quite right. Decision. Right. I mean, the two things I would say there. When I worked at Philips, we were always looking at how many widescreen TVs would be sold in China 
uh, in 10 years time, right? And until I came along and probably after, you know, people would say, well, f you know, 42,500,000, you know, and I would say, well, you know, well, where's the point two? Are you sure it's not point three and so on, right? So the, the tyranny of numbers assumed a kind of idolatrous, you know, uh, function of its own, that just by having the numbers on an Excel spreadsheet, you'd start to believe them, or they would start to believe them, right? Not just Phillips, everybody does that, right? And therefore, uh, I think we've got to be very vigilant against technocratic solutions, um, which suggest that algorithms are unbiased, that big data is always progress, that, you know, that's what the facts say, that's what the experts say, it must be right. At the same time, I'm not quite with you on the intuition side. I, I hear what you say, right? Um, because uh, we hear so much praise in, in the design world for intuition, and I'm all for it. You know, we are intuitive animals, okay? However, the thing that between technocracy on the one hand and intuition on the other is rationalism. And Thomas Heatherwick actually said it. Everything that we do is like, you know, being a detective. Rationality in his design is the key event. I've got the actual quote somewhere, right? And that's what we're not getting enough of. We got all the people who want to, you know, do that 60s thing all over again. That's very boring. And we got all the other people who want to do the Blair key performance indicators, target mentality thing, also very boring. There's a space in the middle, which is where us as autonomous individuals can debate, discuss, come to some conclusions, test it, make a mistake, make another prototype, and eventually through rationality can come to something better. And that's what I think we need. We do need big data. There's no harm in it, right? What it, where there's harm is if we get too much of it and we we start sort of allowing it to have a religious hold over us. That would be a mistake. On the other hand, just to be intuitive about the office, office, you know, well then we'd all be lying about on carpets and and or you know in, on bean bags, and you you can't. That's no way to run a railroad. You know, you've got to have some discipline as long as it isn't sort of a rarefied discipline of um, civil servant mandarins and all of those people. But, so you think the balance is wrong at the moment? Yeah, I think we've, we lurch between a kind of intuitive approach. You know, um, I, once, I once took Charles Handy down because he said, you know, and in a BBC Two interview, so we, you know, we need more women on the board because they're so much more intuitive than men. You know, and I went like this and the camera actually, your camera cut to me doing that because I thought it was so patronising to women. Right? You know, are women more intuitive than men? Well, you'd have to make a case for it. And would that be a good thing? Well, is intuition, you know, it could lead to me crossing the road because I intuit that a car is not going to hit me and it is going to hit me. So that's one extreme. The other one is this, cold, ruthless, boring, unemotional, you know, completely unintuitive zone where politicians and technocrats uh, have uh, entered never to come out. And that's what we're all supposed to bow down to, the experts, you know, there. But, the, you know, experts can be expert in surgery, but uh, they can't really be expert in philosophy or they can know a lot. Right. But, you know, and above all in politics, you're as expert as me. You know, your vote counts as much, no more, no less, 
than mine. There are no experts in politics. And big data is not going to, you know, the, uh, Obama won because old Nate Silver, you know, uh, well, you know, he, he, uh, the Guardian said, you know, Obama won because Nate Silver had done, run all the numbers and he got everything right in every state and so on. Yeah, but what Nate Silver forgot is Obama's drone campaigns, right? That is not a matter of intuition. It's not a matter of data. It's a matter of politics, right? And I, I hold no brief for his uh, record in government precisely because of that. He can poll it to death. You know, he can focus group it to death. But it's not the same that's as well, they always judgment. Get the, they always get the results wrong in the polls at the moment, though, don't they? Well, Whenever that's they another thing. Because yeah, people will tell them what they want to hear and then do something uh, different. Absolutely. If I'm voting Trump, why am I going to say I'm voting Trump? I'm not voting Trump, but if I was, I wouldn't tell anybody. Not somebody with a clipboard. He collects the data. Oh, it must be true. No. you know. And we've got April this year. We've got 16th Turkish referendum. 23rd first round of the French elections. Something's going to happen you know, quite a lot. And uh, one thing we can be sure of is the polls are pretty far off the truth yeah. right now. They're part of the problem, not part of the solution. I keep telling my friends this about Brexit. The ones who are getting themselves worked up about it, just saying there's a lot of things are going to happen over the next two years, you know, so I wouldn't be predicting what, what's going to happen. It's all going to take yeah. a great deal of time. I think the EU is, is going to be in a different place in two exactly years' time. Right. It's anyway. already coming to a different place. Um, you put a slide up during the presentation about... Just one? Uh, yeah, several. <laughs> about uh, ONS employment data, which, which showed a sort of a fall in uh, the public sector employment levels. Um, one data set that was missing from that was the um, number of self-employed people in the UK now, which is greater than the number in the public sector. So you're getting on for one in five people now self-employed. But um, there seems to be um, a great deal of confusion within government about exactly how these people function. Would, would you say that's correct? Yeah, well, uh, you know, the growth of self-employment is enormous. And I think that reflects what I was talking about before, that we're not opening up the new sectors. So more and more people are, you know, being turning themselves into subcontractors. That gets people off the books. Because a lot of those public sector jobs are still around. They're just classed as being in the private sector. Even right? though they, they're only just working for that one. Yeah, organizer. one employer and so on. They are outsourced. Looks good on the numbers. You know, it must be the truth. But in fact, they're still schlepping around, usually in the same rather battered, low investment public sector offices, or they're certainly entering them as guests. And it's very important to look through the numbers, to, to get behind them and say, now what's going on here? Growth of self-employment is very important. People work long hours in self-employment. It's part of the trend towards actually fairly modest automation, very modest capital investment, and more and more sweated labor, more labor utilization. Now, having said that, we had a great presentation this morning from Gensler, uh, and one of the things it talked a lot about is stress in the office. I know a little bit about stress. Um, read the literature and I'm often subject to it. But I strongly recommend anybody who's worried about it in the office, have a look at George Orwell's description of going down a mine. Or have a look at the subversive movie Harlan County, USA, filmed in Kentucky. If you take the first two minutes of that movie when you get in a cage and you go down a mile in a mine, 
then you'll really learn about stress, yeah. right? We've got it easy. We've And, you know, all of these university kids who are stressed out by somebody's, you know, saying some trigger warning wor- worthy uh, word, you know, forget it, guys, right? It's it's not stress. Well, well, stress is a reaction. I mean, people always forget this, don't they? It's it's your reaction to something. It's not it's not actually the problem with the, the stimulus. It's your response to Ooh. it that's the issue. So, that, I mean, that's even the health and safety executive's definition of it. And um, it's so, an enormous stress industry. Now that's really great. You could argue <laughs> that is a new sector of production if it was production. Well, know. my granddad worked down a pit actually, and he uh, he told both my dad and my uncle that they weren't going down after him. Right. So my dad joined the army, and uh, my my uncle became a lorry driver. And you know, obviously, my granddad thought you'd be better off being shot at. <laughs> well, I, you know, you, you, see that, you see that. For, I've been I've been down the leg of a North Sea oil platform, a hundred meters beneath the, the North Sea. Right, nobody's going to get to you there in a hurry if something goes wrong, and things do go wrong big time there. That was stressful. You know, you've got alarms going. If there's a fire, it's a race be- between you and the fire because the lift jams. You know, in the normal way in offices, that is stressful. So let's get these things in perspective. You know, it's different from well, the I, old days. Well, I also know anecdotally, and we do sound like grumpy old men now, don't we? That, that, Speak for yourself. Yeah, we're quite. Um, that from from anecdotally, from talking to facilities and HR managers, one of the issues with stress is when you start asking people if they're stressed, they say yes. And um, you know, it's the Heisenberg uncertainty principle, isn't it? Once you start measuring it, they be, it, it creates it. Of course. You know, you you have um, then to, you're you're partly creating the industry by focusing on it. And it's not to say that you know people don't get uh, you know enter stressful situations and respond to it badly and and suffer all sorts of in all sorts of ways. Um, um, but nevertheless, you know, you've got to remember that it's a it's a two piece equation. There's a stimulus Correct. and a response. Correct. And you've got to control over one of them and not necessarily control over over the other. And uh, it makes the thing very complicated. And I think, um, you know, not not wishing to say people, you know, count your blessings, which is, you know, but, but you know, in some ways they do, don't they? They have to think, you know, this is just work. You know, it is a pain in the neck sometimes, you know, and you have to, Well, it's know, just a job. You know, there, there are some extremes, all right? But in offices, you know, you might trip over a post-it note or, <laughs> or something like that. But, you know, it's not heavy industry, folks. And, and uh, young people in particular... Given that we've, we're at a moment of historical amnesia, you know, have they ever seen Fritz Lang's Metropolis? The workers doing this, you know, all day long and so on. Now, that was a caricature. But in the 30s, you could say, yeah, there was a lot of stress. And yet, we had the moral fibre, if you'll forgive the old-fashioned term, you know, to handle it. I mean, I, I don't support war, but, you know, people who go into the army and so on, you know, they handle a lot of stress and they still come out of it most of the time pretty well, you know, going through horrendous stuff. We're very resilient, you know, an extremely resilient species. We learn fast, we forget fast the bad stuff, you know, we can come through it all and we will come through it all. So that kind of returns us back to the optimistic view of of life in, in offices though, doesn't it? Is the, you know, you have to say that actually whatever happens to you here, you know, however, you know, stressful it might be on the surface, actually, you know, you having a job is a great thing. Being around other people is a great thing and, and doing something you enjoy is a great thing too, isn't it? Completely. I mean, the, the problem, I think, you know, if we had a campaign about dullness, 
dull work, <laughs> such a great Anglo-Saxon four-lettered one, dull, right? If management can, instead of bringing in the stress therapist, said, no, 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 we don't think you're really stressed out. What we think is we're a bit dull, you know, now we'd be talking See, about I, I, something I'm serious. I'm not a big fan of the sort of corporate prescribed fun thing. No, 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 I'm not but, saying for fun. Yeah, but you I'm know saying what, you know creative what I mean, jobs that require imagination, that bring out the best of people. No, 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 compulsory fun, certainly not. But you you've know. seen people who do that, though, don't they? You know, it's, I mean, they, it's a big, they, big deal, you know. Well, I, I worry about some of the design is quite juvenile, you know, sometimes. They, Completely. And especially, they, and, and again, it's, it's patronising too, because they talk a lot about the younger generations, don't they? So the same thing you were saying about women being patronised by by people, you know, you, you we patronise millennials, don't we? We think, you know, if we want them in the office, we've got to give them a slide and a and a, a ping pong table. You've you got know. to call them tech savvy millennials. <laughs> if I hear that phrase, and they're just people, aren't they? Yeah, with all the same drives and and fears and motivations and whatever. Yes, uh, in that way we else. haven't we haven't changed no. very much. So James, we've had a great conversation, a great day at the uh, conference as well. But um, if you had to sort of come up with uh, three messages that workplace champions could take away from a day like this, what, what would you say they were? I think the first is believe in people. You know, the, there's an old album by uh, an American uh, West Coast band in the 60s, Love, they were called. And it contains the innocent and disarming line, you know, I think people are the greatest thing. It's as simple as that. That was the sense of possibility in the 60s. We're not going back to that. No reason to be nostalgic. But we've lost our enlightenment belief that human beings are a bit special, really, that they're capable of many things. And believing in them is very important. I think that's the first thing. Consonant with that, the second thing is believe in research and development. Start investing in it. Get the people around it. Because... In a service economy like Britain, services are extremely weak in R&D. You know, manufacturing is where R&D happens. Barclays does a little bit. Um, actually, process industries like BP and Shell do far too little. Retailers are very poor at it. You're looking at 0.2% of revenues being spent on R&D. For every £1,000, Tesco, even M&S, earn, they're spending two researching the future okay. and that will generally be their competitors rather than new technologies and so on they say it's for the gondola manufacturer to research new gondolas no because you know that they are then subcontracting the responsibility outsourcing the responsibility for research and development and when they shouldn't be they should say we've got good people at john lewis or waitrose or whatever we need to gather them around labs Shinarps are just doing all this new work about, you know, test tubes and clamps and bumps and burners and, you know, sinks. And they've got a whole new range of lab furniture, which is, you know, inexpensive, never cheap, but inexpensive, best materials, can take a whole lot of sulfuric acid. We're going to buy all of that, going to make some spanking new labs with no table footage. And, you know, we're going to believe in our people and uh, R&D. And the third message is, we desperately, I've said it, we desperately need, you know, new sectors of production. We need mass manufactured homes, right? Of course, somebody will rush in and say Ronan Point, and I reply, reply my daughter thinks Ronan Point is an Irish boy band. You know, it's not, <laughs> it's not that, right? And since Ronan Point, which was in the 60s, we've got internet protocols, we've got robots, we've got the Chinese, you know, we've got 
LNG or legal in general, actually mass manufacturing homes. So that's an industry. There's a big demand for it. We need to deregulate the green belt and build all over the bits of scrub and dual carriageway that are in the green belt. And that way we'll be able to have kids who have their own homes instead of living with their grandparents, all of that bad stuff. We'll have a, a high-tech, competitive, high-paid industry where the solar panels can be built in, you know, where there's no rain in a factory, right? And uh, we can do all of these things and then you can get your software upgrades and unhackable homes and all of that. That would be a whole new industry. Another one is pipes. You take a normal office, right? How often is there a flood because of a, a, a pipe? I don't know whether Thames Water was in the audience today. They were in the, in the delegates list, right? Don't know, they've just been fined squillions for you know sewage going everywhere i don't know whether it was pipes but don't tell me that utilities today you know make intelligent pipes complete with the internet of things that never leak you know and there was that gas leak just a couple yeah. of weeks ago right we need intelligent pipes with new materials and we need to track them and know where they are and get at them easily and and the interfaces need to be good and the joins need to be good and we need it for <gasps> oil and gas we certainly need it for water we need it for broadband you know wherever that is in modern britain well yeah. you know so that's a whole new in it's an old industry that needs a big refresh right and intelligent pipes they'll never be intelligent like you and me but you know cleverer pipes that's a big industry you know and we got polypipe and a few other manufacturers in this country but it could be a very big deal for irrigation in the in 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 deserts and in africa and so on for all kinds of things so there are new sectors of production pipes a fairly modest one compared with say service robots or manufactured uh, homes or electronic textiles right but we need new sectors of production not carrying on in the same old way we, we may take a hit as a lot of rubbish jobs are got rid of in my new sectors sort of scenario. Uh, and we need very proper transitional measures to reskill, retrain workers to handle the interregnum. But if we carry on in the same old way, with the same old patterns of work, we'll be back with the John Le Carre green filing cabinets gathering dust, not literally, but, you know, clunky old IT, clunky old offices with everybody scrabbling to get by. No, a youth won't accept it. Older people won't accept it. Even the middle classes one day will not accept well, it. Well, I think they're going on there. You can see it with the middle class as well. They're starting to, to rebel against what's happening to them. I think that was partly responsible for Brexit, wasn't it? It's just this dissatisfaction. Yeah, but often they take it out... You know, where all, all of our rulers are always totally evil. I don't think that's fair. Or, you know, these unwashed fat people from up north or, or Ohio, they're to blame. I think the middle class will be the last to sort of turn around. But we, I think there's something we have. We have say. our own middle class up north as oh, well. Oh, do you? Yeah. Oh, good. Well, I'm sure they're yeah. better than the Well, I'm part of it, there. so, you know. Well, thanks very much, Mark. You've been a wonderful civilization. Uh, and <laughs> it's an old Mel Brooks line. Uh, and um, yeah, I think quite, quite revealing.